Well, a while back, uh, we, we found this really big, nasty-looking spider crawling on our bedroom wall. Did you ever have one of those? Um, yeah, this was a big, ugly-looking thing, and we were able to somehow get it into a plastic Ziploc bag. We sealed the bag, and then we turned to the Internet to make sure we could identify what this... Uh, what the spider was, and, and it took some time, you know, to identify the, the, the particular characteristics, but you look and you say, hey, if it has this, then it might be this. If it looks like that, it might be this. And we finally narrowed it down and came to the conclusion that we had what's called a yellow sack spider crawling on our bedroom wall. Um, it actually, it bears a fairly close resemblance, a very close resemblance to the brown recluse spider, and for those of you who know your spiders, the brown recluse is not one you want to mess with. Um, but, uh, but it was the particular distinctions that helped us verify what species we were dealing with. And so, kind of use that as an opening analogy to, to ask the question, what's distinct about the species of Christ followers? What is it specifically about the Christian species that sets us apart from others. Um, we're, we're making our way through the book of 1 John. The series is called Verify, and that's kind of what we're doing, verifying. It's, it's about living with, with assurance through verifying what are the defining characteristics, the distinctions of the Christian life. And, and we looked last week at a few of those distinctions, the, the distinction of brokenness and, and of obedience and of, of commitment to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and this week, that gets followed up with just this, um, this note of assurance that I want to read with you together. Here's what John says here. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abide in, abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's just kind of poetically written, um, just description of assurance, that this, this blessed assurance. And, and assurance really is a blessing. Going through life, living with that assurance, that, that, that where we stand before the Lord is for sure. It's, it's assured. And, and it's something that we can live with, that we, we're, we're, we're privileged to live with because the gospel is true. Um, and, and what he's saying here is it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what stage of life you happen to be in. Little children, this applies to you. Your sins are forgiven because of Jesus' namesake, right? And because you've trusted in him. And, and for fathers who know the Father, the Heavenly Father, they have that same assurance. And, and, and young people, your victory over the evil one, over that's, that's, that's identifying Satan, that's already been won because of the cross where, where Jesus died and won that victory. And, and these, are, these are right now realities that are there for us to grab hold of, right? These, these are not like dangling carrots for the Christian life that if we only get 
once we prove to God that we're good boys, good girls, right? God, God doesn't motivate our lives that way. He doesn't motivate his children by fear. The gospel inverts that. It works the other way around. It, it, it gives us this assurance that we are fully forgiven, that we are completely loved, that we are accepted in Jesus. And, and because that is true, that leads to life change, um, not the other way around. And so, and so we can embrace that message. We can hear it as God's word to us this morning and live with assurance with the safety and the, the security of, of being assured. So John goes on after that, and he kind of switches gears just a little bit and, and, and issues this very strong warning about worldliness. Let's, let's read what he has to say. He says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, so there's this, this warning, this very kind of clear warning. Do not love the world. Do not love anything in the world. But, you know, before we can heed that warning, we have to understand what it actually is that he's talking about. This, this word world is used a number of different ways throughout the Bible. In, in some places, it's used to describe the geography of God's creation on earth, right? Like the mountains and the waterfalls and the trees. These are all a part of, of the world that God created. And once he created them, he, he called them good. And so when, when he's saying do not love the world, he's not saying do not love the mountains and the skies and such like that. That's not what he's warning us about. Um, world is also used to describe the people who, who live on the earth. So John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have eternal life. So, so just to clarify, this passage is not calling us to, to not love the people who God does love. That would kind of make us scratch our head and wonder what's going on. There's a, there's a third way the world this word world is used, and it's used to describe this default mindset of fallen humanity, um, the pervading orientation. And, and, and that's what this passage is talking about. There's this undergirding orientation that pervades our world that's in opposition to God, that's in opposition to his values and his purposes. And, and 13 times in this book, John talks about the world in that way. He says the world dismisses Jesus, it, that it reacts in hatred towards his followers, and, and that it's under the influence of the evil one, the same evil one that he just assured us that, that, that we've overcome, that, uh, that he's in charge of this fallen world. And so, and so what he's warning us against to steer clear of is, is buying into a worldly value system. Don't align your life with those things that the world props up and pursues that's apart from God. Don't get wrapped up by the spirit of the age. And, and the reason this is so vital, John says, is that he says this, if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. 
So it's this, it's this either or thing. It's, we, we've seen that already. We saw that last week. Um, the world's values are diametrically opposed to God's values. And so if we set our hearts on what the world is chasing after and we start pursuing that, then, then we stop becoming a vessel that God is pouring out his love to and pouring out his love through. That's, that's how much is at stake. And so I, I would kind of compare it that, that John's saying that this is like your life. You are living in a stream and, and the current of the stream that we are living in is pulling us in a trajectory away from God, away from the things of God, away from the things that God values. And so we have this choice. We can, we can either let ourselves just go with the flow and get caught up in the currents of culture and take us where they will, or we can choose to go against the flow and make our way upstream and keep on locking our sights on those things that God values. And, and, so, and so the question is, how do we do that? How do we actually know if our lives are being influenced by the wrong value system? You know, it's a, it's a good question. Um, it's, a, it's a question that, uh, that, that Christ followers have been trying to figure out uh, for years, ever since the beginning. And oftentimes, I got to tell you that we come up with the wrong answers. You know, we, we, we tend to love lists, you know, let's just write the list down and, and we can decide, here's the activities that are quote-unquote worldly. And if we avoid these activities, then we know we're not of the world. And so, you know, there's this adage that says, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't run with the girls who do. Right? That's, uh, that, that was back from the day. Um, and over the years, the, the lists change, you know, uh, when I went to college at a Christian college, they had a no dancing policy. You know, that was a very important distinction for them. Don't dance. Um, for others, it's don't go to movies or don't drink alcohol. Um, different lists. And the problem with lists is that they don't address the heart issue. They only deal with the exterior motives, uh, but they never get to to, to the heart of the issue. And that's where John is talk, taking us. He's talking about the attitude, the orientation of our hearts. He says this, everything in the world, and then he, look what he says, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Those, those are interior things that are going to express themselves in exterior ways. But you know what? It's a whole lot more challenging it doesn't fall nice and neatly into bullet points on a list. But he says all this comes from the Father, not from the Father, but from the world. So, so let's unpack those three things. The first one he talks about is the cravings of sinful man. And so the question becomes, what are we craving? What are we craving? You know, in every human heart, there's a God-shaped hole. There's a place that only Jesus can fill. And, and it's because God created us to be connected to him, to live with him. Um, but if you reject that reality, you end up trying to fill that hole with all kinds of substitutes that just simply can't satisfy. Um, it's what 
The Bible calls it idolatry. You know, and idolatry is more than just like, you know, bowing down to some wooden statue. It's, it's when we set our desires on anything less than the living God. And actually, oftentimes, um, the objects of idolatry are not bad things. They're oftentimes good things that get elevated and become God things in our lives, false God things. And so it's like when, when the pursuit of the idol of success takes over for that job, you know, where everything else gets sacrificed for the sake of success in the workplace, whether it be time with family or, or balance for other priorities or church. And, and of course, the hope is that that next promotion, when I get that, it's going to fill that void in the heart. But it never does. It never does. And, 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 and that's something everybody knows, but that doesn't stop them from pursuing it. Others, others will turn family into an idol, do whatever it takes to keep the family happy at all costs. And that, the assumption is, that will fill up that hole in my heart. But that's an impossible expectation. Sooner or later, that idol comes toppling down. People don't respond the way you want them to because anything less than the living God cannot satisfy because we're made for him. And so, and so as we're looking for traces of worldliness in our lives, the question becomes, where, where are the idols? Where, where are the good things that I've just elevated too high and turned them into God things? What am I sacrificing everything else for? Those, those are the cravings of sinful man. It also talks about the lust of the eyes, and, and, that's, and that's talking about this tendency to value things based on how they look and the selfish pleasure they bring to us, right? Like, so what the eye delights in, the heart inside covets. And so there's so many examples of this. We see David, when he saw Bathsheba bathing, that what he saw led to him wanting in his heart, and that led to him taking, using her for himself. Or, or even Eve, right? When she saw the fruit, and she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, Genesis says, and then she took it and ate it. Coveting, coveting, is, it's woven into the fabric of our culture. It's woven into the fabric of fallen humanity. It's what makes the broken world go round. Never satisfied. Always needing more. That's, uh, I, I was a marketing major in college, and I, that's, that's what the entire advertising industry is, is built around, that, that no matter how much we have, what we really need is just a little bit more. And there was a survey done um, that, uh, that surveyed people at every economic level, you know, whether it was poverty, uh, middle income, or high income, and the question was the same, how much more do you need? And for every category, the answer was the same, just a little bit more. Be on guard against coveting. Uh, I'll tell you a story, a personal story about this. 22 years ago, I think um, uh, Brian and Dan were little kids at the time, and I'm like, you know, I want to upgrade my bike. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, I, I went and I bought a really nice road bike. I, I do a lot of riding, um, and I wanted to upgrade because the last bike I had was the bike that I rode when I was a teenager. And that was 22 years ago. Uh, 22 years later, I got to say, it's still, a, it's a really nice bike. Um, carbon fiber frame, 
high-end components, and it's actually, it's actually the same frame that Lance Armstrong rode on when he rode in the Tour de France and won, uh, minus, of course, the EPO. Um, but, uh, but, but last year, so, you know, I take my bike, and I've been riding it for 22 years, no problem, and I, I go to the bike shop for the group ride. They have a weekly ride at the bike shop that I, I show up there last year, and people are looking at my bike, and, and, and you know, and, and they're making all kinds of comments. I know these guys pretty well. They're making all kinds of comments and little, you know, jabs about, hey, that's a nice antique you're riding over there. And, and one guy, actually, he was really earnest. He said, it's really nice of you to keep such an old bike in such good shape. And I'm like, what? And so, and so of course, that motivated me on that particular group ride to ride a, with a little bit of extra gas to make sure that they knew that this old bike and this old man can still, can still motor around. Um, but after that, of course, I went home and I told Diane, listen, we've got a problem. <laughs> I am desperately in need of a new bike. They told me at the bike shop, and so we've got to fix this problem. And of course, Diane said, your bike's fine. And, uh, and I, I tried, but, uh, but it's just kind of an example. It doesn't take much for that attitude of covetousness, of never being satisfied to take shape in our hearts. Watch out for that. That's not from God. That's from the world. Enjoy the contentment of being satisfied with the good things that we've been given. The final part of this worldliness is the boasting, it says, of what we have and what we do. Boasting in what we have and what we do. It's talking about basing our identity, seeing ourselves in terms of our possessions and our accomplishments. Now, it's not saying that there's anything particularly wrong with having or that there's anything wrong with doing, that's not the point. It's, it's when we base our worth, when we choose to identify ourselves on those things. When, when that becomes the measure, the standard against which we, we measure ourselves to the other people around us. This can become a means through which I can feel superior, more important, more valuable than others because of whatever it is what I have or what I do. That's, that's when it turns into a problem. When we base our significance on things like the size of my house or, or the car that I drive or the degrees that I've earned, that's, 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 that's worldly. It's not godly. The, the world that we live in bases significance on, on those kind of things, toys and titles and treasures. And God says, those things don't matter. That's not the point of what life is about. Jesus told a, a parable, a story about this rich man who had enjoyed great success. He was, he was so, so fruitful. His, his farm produced so many crops that he had to go out and, and build bigger barns for himself. You know, things were good. The industry was expanding. Nothing wrong with that. But his abundance led to this blinding pride. So it says, it says he said to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, that, that response actually is a great articulation of the American dream. That's, that's what life is about. Build it up, get what you can, and then sit back, 
eat, drink, and be merry. Do well for yourself and then take it easy. But then what happens next is the problem. It says God came and he calls him a fool. A fool. His material wealth, his success had blinded him from a very real spiritual need, a reality. And God said, you're going to die tonight. And the problem was this, that the second after he took his last breath, everything he had built his life on, all that material wealth and success would be meaningless, utterly meaningless. Materialism blinds us from eternity. It blinds us from our need for God. It fools us into thinking we've got it taken care of and we're in good shape. The, the world tells us you only go around once, so, so get everything you can for yourself. God says you only go around once, so make it count for eternity. And, and the only way we can live effectively through the present time the temporary is to understand and keep our sights set on what is eternal and what lasts forever. Sever the connection to the eternal. Once you do that, you end up just living for toys and titles, and you end up wasting your life. And that's, that's the current that our culture is in. You know, in each of these three assessments, they all put self right at the center. In a world that pushes God to the margins, sees God as irrelevant, it makes perfect sense to replace him instead of having him at the center, to just put self at the center and live a me-centered life. And, and that's, that, that really does describe a lot of the world and what the world values. There was a recent um, CNN journalist that wrote this. She said, Women should be allowed to care about pleasing ourselves and only ourselves without being judged. What is wrong with a woman being selfish, really? Think about it for a second. Why shouldn't we be selfish if it means we're meeting our own needs and caring, taking care of ourselves? What's wrong with caring more about bringing pleasure to your own life than anything else? It should not be as controversial as it apparently is for women to think of themselves first if they're not hurting anyone. Reasonable people agree a woman should make herself happy, but why do these people suddenly think it's so unreasonable when those women say it would make her happy just to focus on herself? You know, Jesus has a radically different message, and, and don't worry, it applies not only to women, it applies equally to men and women. His message is this, if you want to save your life, lose it. He says, the greatest among you will be a servant. And, and so where we find selfishness surfacing in our lives, we can be assured that the world has made inroads into our lives. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we never take a moment for ourselves, but that's a far cry from turning selfishness into a virtue, which is actually what is being prescribed here. Do you know, versions of that same message have been around for generations, and it's what leads to broken homes. It's what leads to children without parents. It's what leads to so many of the ills that we can look at in our culture. The effect is profound. And John says, that has no place in the Christian life. And so he gives us 
a different track to go on. He says, pursue God's will. He takes us to the end of the road and he shows us what our destination will be based on how we live our lives now. And he reminds us of something that we all already know, but sometimes we lose sight of it. That this world and its desires are temporary. Right? The, the house is going to rot. The car is going to rust. The job's going to be gone. All these lesser things that we chase after they aren't going to bring any lasting peace because they don't last. Not because they're bad, but because they're temporary. They're not eternal, but we are, and we are created for eternity. So he says this, the one who lives to do God's will will live forever. So instead of buying into the ways of the world and chasing after them, he says, be sold out to seeing God's will get done. And you won't go wrong. There's something permanent and eternal that we have the opportunity to invest our lives in right now. God's will. Finding out what God's will is, what God wants, and then doing that. God, God is about something. God wants something. He does have an agenda. It's, it's centered around his son, Jesus Christ, knowing him, making him known, being a part of seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that kingdom isn't going to end. That's going to go on. And we're given this invitation every day to set our lives on God and go after what he wants. And I guarantee you, at least I have not, I've yet to see it in my, in, in my experience, of anyone who says, I really regret going hard after God's will, right? When you get to your deathbed, I can guarantee you one thing. You're not going to wish that you worked more hours and got more promotions. You're not going to wish that you spent more money to get more stuff. It's those eternal things. Those are going to be top of mind. How did I live my life? What difference for eternity did I make? Who came to know Jesus because of me? For many of us, this issue of worldliness as Christ followers is one of the primary challenges that we have to deal with on a daily basis. It's been said that worldliness is the particular challenge of the church of this generation. Seduction by the world, not persecution from the world, is the particular challenge of the church in this generation. Few of us are facing a threat of martyrdom, but all of us face the threat of seduction. Those are wise words. I know it's true in my life. You know, there's this, there's this part of me that for many years wants so bad to be accepted by the culture around me as a Christ follower, respected for my faith. And, and, and sometimes I found myself that the most important thing is proving to the world that Christians are relevant. Christians are relevant, that, that, that this worldly system that doesn't understand Christ, that doesn't have anything locked into eternity, is somehow going to see Christ followers as relevant. I wonder what John would have to say about that. You know, I know there's a part of that that's good, but I think the more and more that I find myself trying to fit in, the more I hear God calling me to stand out. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and that means that the point can never be 
to expect an unbelieving world to embrace the kingdom of God, the church of God, as something that they would approve and affirm. There's, there, there is nothing more relevant than the gospel. Um, that, that, that's true. Jesus' kingdom is going to last forever. Oftentimes we hear these things, be on the right side of history. And of course the assumption is that the person saying that is on the right side of history. They know what it is, and they're on it, and if you're not, you better get over to where I am. And so here's, here's what I have to say. If you're about building God's kingdom, you're on the right side of history. It doesn't matter what the culture says about it. It doesn't matter what the world's response to it is. They may like it. Jesus also said, hey, you know what? If the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. Get ready. That's going to happen. But align your life around what matters to Jesus. Do that in full view of the world, and it's going to look radically different. Some people may get it, some people may not, but God will use that to make an eternal impact. It's a way of just saying, be in the world, but not of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this